Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk. This is the third installment of our Richard Kuklinski story, I guess you'd call it, or discussion, more like. Um, Kathy's here, too. I am here. Yay. I wanted to quickly give a shout out to, um, we gathered a new patron just a little few days ago, I think since the last time we were recording, and her name is Natalie, and we'd like to welcome Natalie to Hi, Patreon. Natalie. <laughs> you probably hear in the bumpers that we have a Patreon page, and we have members over there, so welcome, Natalie. Uh, Natalie had a request for a movie for us to watch, and that'll be coming up in the next couple of weeks on the Shrink Chat show, actually, where we can be... A little bit nuttier. I don't know. We could be nutty here too if we really wanted to. Sometimes we are nutty here. It's true. It's starting to bleed over, and but the topics are s somewhat dark, <laughs> generally speaking. So mm -hmm. sometimes we get less nutty on the Terror Talk Show. But anyway, so we've covered Richard's childhood and Richard's teenage land. Although I think when we left off, we were in him as a teenager, even though. So much of what he does did as a teenager was like a 25-year-old. I mean, we were, chronologically, we were really just up to him being about 15 or 16, 17 in there. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like that for anybody who had an average life. But so remember that Richard is right at this moment. He's a young man. He's... He's handsome. He's killed violently. He's got a hair trigger temper. He's got revenge fantasies. He um, he's very quick to hurt people. He's also now killed for money, which was the story mm -hmm. we sort of left off on last night, last time. His rite of passage. Yeah, into the mafia, right? So he executed, quite frankly, well, quite literally, to um, and and performed what we know to be, what we believe to be his first kill for the mafia, the Genovese crime family. So he has this gang of friends who he executes mostly thieving with. They're mostly thieves. They mostly rob. And now moved into killing for money. Uh, but he also is, so he's earning a lot of money by uh, thieving, being robbing. And he gambles it away. He spends it on women. He gambles it away. He talks, buys these crazy clothes I was talking about before. He basically talks about how he pissed it all away. Mm. He was making tons of money, you know, and money didn't mean anything. So mm. he's, he's just spending it. And, um, I mean, as a kid, you know, if you come into that kind of money as a, yeah. And I think sometimes two people who come into it quickly and they've never had it, Yes. There, there's oftentimes a, they don't really, um, it's not that they don't understand the value of it, but I think that it's, it's, that's why I think we see a lot of people with old money are able to monitor it or to, um, invest it really well. There's like an understanding, but I think a lot of people who come into it and have never had it, they tend to go bankrupt. Well, and for Richard, I think that, that, you know, he probably didn't have a sense of legacy, right? Right. I think people with older money have a sense of legacy yes, and passing it a, on. a and lot of different purposes and values around it. At this point, I imagine Richard didn't even think he would have a family or right. any of that. I mean, I don't think that was part of his, his thought process. So, so that's all happening. But 
simultaneously, what starts to happen as a young man is there's only, I'm not going to go super chronologically anymore, but I do want to set up who he becomes in his young adulthood, which is he begins, you know, he's got this hair trigger temper. So if someone pisses him off, he will kill them. And that's what it's come to. It's Mm -hmm. not just like beating people up. There are stories about how, you know, a, a homeless man is too persistent with him on the street and he'll simply turn around and stab the guy twice real quick Mm -hmm. on the street and leave him for dead. Or, um, uh, he was quite good looking at this point and he would go to clubs and bars. And there's a story about how this one particular young gay man was a little bit too persistent with him. And he talks about how he didn't have anything against people being gay. He didn't have anything against anybody really, except if they were too persistent. That's what he calls it. Like Mm -hmm. if they were too persistent with me, then I, I didn't tolerate that. And so there's a story about how at one point, you know, a gay man was too persistent, like followed him and, you know, he had politely said, I'm not into that. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Like aggressive in a way. But the guy like follows him to the parking lot and say, hey, I know you want it. This kind of thing are kind of some of the quotes. And uh, Richard, this is what it's like to be a woman. Yes. (laughs) Welcome. So, right. So, and luckily we are not all shooting and stabbing the people who do that. Right. (laughs) Uh, But Richard was, and he was doing this all over West Manhattan. And he talks about, so this is going to be an, um, I think this episode will start to reveal his um, pathology and the way we see it. So the first thing I want to bring up is that in this, this what we've seen over the course of the other true crime psychology um, episodes that we've done, cases that we've done, is that it's uh, there's often a lot of practice going on and there's often a lot of practice on um, people who are... Uh, easy prey. Let's Mm. put it that way. Mm -hmm. And so that's what ends up happening is, so the case for him being a serial killer is definitely in this time of his life. He, um, he's killing homeless people. He's killing uh, gay people. He's killing not because they're gay and not because they're homeless, but because they're, uh, easy and they're the people that are around. And so that, this is why when you watch interviews with him and he says, I, Two, over 200 people for sure I killed, but I don't really know, you know, because he was not being discriminate. Now, some of the killers we've, we look at have, you know, they killed 25 people over the course of 20 years and th- they take a lot of time. Like that's part of their deal. Mm-hmm. And that might be true later, but that not true of Richard. Now he, he just is, he's playing it out. He's playing out all of his aggression and he's doing it on purpose. It's not that he's not picking and stalking. He's mm-hmm. just not spending a ton of time caring about it. Right. He, he, he might, you know, someone in a pool hall will piss him off and he might not kill him right that minute, but he'll go back and do it the next day. Or it almost sounds more like, like displacement. If yeah. you think about, mm-hmm. um, sure. You know, you brought up like revenge fantasy and all mm-hmm. of the stuff he's carried over from being a kid and maybe didn't have the strength at that time to, and now here he has this opportunity. So anyone that triggers that old anger, it's sort of like a displaced 
aggression mm-hmm. in a way. I mean, these people it might feels be like them that. off, but no, it feels like that. It yeah. feels like that, and it feels like a combination of that, and then the humiliation thing that we've talked about, just being humiliated or um, just getting angry and having no other, like you said, displacement, just no other coping strategy mm-hmm. to um, feel relief. So that's all happening. Gambling and hanging out with his gang and doing that whole thing is happening. He's living with this older woman. So that's happening. He's also begins to kill for the Genovese family. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Carmine at some point gets out of jail and then starts to um, hire him again. And because obviously he's proved himself as someone who can uh, execute orders. And I'm, and I would imagine if he was Italian, he would have been groomed to become part of the family, but he was from Poland. So he, they, his name on the street actually wasn't the Iceman, obviously. That was a media-given moniker much later. They actually called him the Polak. Mm-hmm. And he started to get this reputation in the neighborhood um, in both New York and New Jersey of being um, connected, obviously. So that's one piece of it. Uh, brutal, you know, not to be messed with. Not to, So after this period of time where he's killing all kinds of people, what ends up happening is he starts traveling in these circles where he's known. And then no one really messes with him anymore. Mm-hmm. So I can only imagine what would have happened if he hadn't gotten the job with the mafia to kill. Mm-hmm. Because he would have had to take it out somewhere. And if, if everybody started to avoid him because he was a known guy... <laughs> Mm-hmm. then he wouldn't have had, you know, he would have had to move or something yeah. in order to find um, people to take all of this out on. But what ended up happening is that he found this profession where, uh, so there's a story where he gets what we can assume to be his second contract job, let's say with Carmine Genovese. And it's, it's a, different kind of job if you remember the first job that we talked about last time was a job where it's like just execute this guy and come back and i'll give you some money and he does it and that's that doesn't have to do the body and none of that just kills him and leaves him on the street so this job however is a little bit different genovese says this is a personal affront this guy was you know a jackass to my friend's wife and he needs to be gone and so um richard uh, asks some questions, gets some information. The guy asks for a body part. <laughs> he doesn't, he's like, just bring him back something I can show my friends oh, so God. he can, yeah. <laughs> so ask for, so it's all the mafia cliches. We see them as cliches, but they came from reality. Mm-hmm. So he asked for a body part. He asked for the guy to suffer and he asked for the body to disappear. So this is a much more complicated kind of kill. This is sort of what we've gotten used to watching in the mafia movies. Mm -hmm. Um, So Richard is tasked with this job and goes out, tortures the guy in the middle of nowhere or wherever, and uh, cuts him up. You know, he's by himself this time. He doesn't bring any of his um, crew with him, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But and then he deals with the body disposal. So. And comes back and brings Genovese the head. <laughs> oh, God. And Genovese is impressed. He's like laughing and thinks it's great. Like he realizes what he's found in Richard. Right. That like someone who can execute this does exactly what he tells him to do. 
and quickly. Yeah, no fear response or, I mean, leaves. He's, he's just able yeah. to just it's like apathetically. For Genovese, that's a gold mine. Sure. I mean, any anybody in the mafia is like, this is what we need. This is the person we need. And it's too bad you're not Italian, but, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to. So he puts he puts him to work quite a bit. Um, uh, he becomes the enforcer. So anybody into the mafia knows like there's always a guy that gets sent after you if you don't pay your money back. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what Richard's job becomes. Mm-hmm. He's a pretty young guy at this point still. So his regular job with the mafia becomes the enforcer. So Genovese will give him, here are the debts that need to be collected and you go and get them. And most people will give up the money. They don't want to die generally. So he's doing that as a, as a, as work. Mm-hmm. And then every now and then there's a contract. So, uh, what else? What else do I know about him? Oh, I was going to say the story about uh, why there's no uh, gang anymore. So what ends up happening is, as you might remember, there's there's five guys in the Coming Up Roses gang that they've uh, really come up together. I mean, if you think about it, they were 13, 14, 15 years Good old mm-hmm. when they were doing when they started all this together. And then, you know, several years later, what's in, so they are thieves. So what ends up happening is John Wheeler, who you may remember from the other story, uh, was the guy who couldn't kill the first hit. He was the guy that was supposed to execute the shooting on the street, but couldn't. Mm-hmm. So John, and then there's another guy, Jack, in the gang. These two hoodlums <laughs> decide to um, be more stupid than normal. Uh, they decide to rob a card game. Oh, and unfortunately, this card game is being run by a made man in the mafia. So they go and they rob this card game and somebody recognizes John. Because this this little gang of theirs is known, right? They've executed a hit. They're known in the neighborhood. <laughs> They've been paid for odd jobs. They're ugh. So they recognize the guy. So... Another made man contacts Richard and wants to sit down. And Richard goes and they sit down and talk. And the guy says, so two of your guys robbed, you know, so-and-so's card game. And <laughs> they need to go. And Richard has two two or three different kinds of conversations within that one conversation, trying to talk this guy out of them having to go, which means die and richard really you know is pleading for his friends like hey you know let me talk to them you know i'm i i can talk to them we can work this out i in fact ultimately he says you know i can get them to leave town like let me just get them to leave town and uh tries to find a compromise yeah they'll never come back again Mm. and um he says no they need to go so at that point in the conversation richard realizes that it's really him or them because he knows that if his friends don't die then eventually they'll be coming for him too so so he leaves and he finds uh i believe jack first and shoots him in the head before he can even know it and then he goes and he finds john and he shoots him in the head before he can really acknowledge that um, but what happens for Richard then is that this this is a 
this is a seminal moment for me in his psychology once again, because these were the only friends he'd ever had. They like his first friends. They were from the projects together. Mm -hmm. These were the first people that he ever felt um, friendly towards and liked and didn't see this coming and thought that they, he probably thought, I mean, I'm, I'm projecting now, but he probably thought they would be if they're for each other and, you know, be around for each other. And he begins after this happens, he isolates even more. He trusts no one. He, uh, doesn't, doesn't make friends ever again, really. There's a couple, what you'll find is later in the story, he later in Richard's life story, he makes some friends, but he always ends up killing them. <laughs> he always ends up having to kill them. Well, and I think this, uh, we talked about this in the other episodes where there's never been a deep sense of like relatedness in his mm -hmm. life. So then he has these couple of friends from childhood, which may have been the only sort of experience he had with that. And he has to take them out and they're right. gone too. And so again, it's like, I'm trying to, as much as I can put myself in the position of him and thinking like, why would you? want any relationships it's him against the world right it doesn't and the, serve any purpose it just is hurtful right and the times he tries it fails well and he's in this position where it's either him or them right. now now yes he's a merciless killer who doesn't have any feeling but but he also he might not have he might not have had any feeling shooting a guy in the head but he had feeling for these guys um, it might not be what you and I would feel as friends, no. but he had a connection, um, a light sort of an attachment to that would be for him would be a big deal for right. us. It would seem like acquaintances probably, but for him, it was a thing. It was again, it was like the only sense of relatedness he ever had. And maybe it's right. because of the commonality. Maybe it's because of the longevity, but yeah. And there is a, a misunderstand. I mean, depending on how we're classifying him, if we're classifying him as a psychopath or a sociopath, to, to me, he feels more like a sociopath because a lot of this was clearly his social structure growing up. And a lot of sociopaths can have a couple of relationships that they actually feel attached to. Mm -hmm. And if that's really the case, maybe that was maybe that so with these guys. I don't know. Yeah. I just know. I, I just, from what I was reading, it, it's like in, in watching, it felt like after that happened, that would that would be defining. Yes, he's a killer and all of that, but that that happened, and then there was this. Okay, I'm just going to kill indiscriminately all over the city. I'm going to um, work for the mafia, killing people. I'm not going to make friends anymore. Um, that was his tipping point. And yeah. for every single person we've done a true crime series on, there's mm -hmm. been that point where mm -hmm. they go, okay, there's no turning back. Yeah, because he, you know, the die was cast quite you know, clearly already, but mm -hmm. if there was any chance for him to just be a, I don't know, criminal, mafia criminal, and yeah, he would have killed in that position, but I, I really feel like this tips this uh, tips him into, because it happened so young, mm -hmm. I think it tips him into, um, you know, antisocial personality mm -hmm. and um, psychopathic, you know, uh, behavior mm -hmm. and all kinds of things. So, I want to, and I was going to end this section with a couple of clips. So as I've mentioned before, and as we've pl played a, a few clips from this before, there was a psychiatrist who interviewed 
Richard long ago. And so the clips are from that interview. They are not our clips. I want to make that very clear. I'm not passing these off as, as our clips, an interview. Neither of us have, obviously he's deceased, ever assessed or talked to Richard before. But this, these two clips, um, so listen to this first clip and just listen to him and how the conversation goes. And then I'm going to stop it. And then we'll listen to the second clip because I think the two clips together really, um, they, they give a good example, uh, for people to know kind of what a conversation would look like, um, for you or I in a therapeutic environment to be interviewing, talking about, and trying to help or explain or provide some sort of self-concept to someone like this. And, and granted, keep in mind, this is an older person in a prison who's been there a while, and he's done some self-reflection. He's in a contained environment, so he's able to have um, – contain thoughts about things, which is not what we would, <laughs> which is not what we would see if they were just to show up in our private practice. If, mm -hmm. if Richard was out in the world still, he wouldn't be going to a therapist most likely, right. and certainly not as a younger person. So this is an older person. And the reason why this psychiatrist can have this conversation, because there's a implied respect for this psychiatrist too, which I can uh, talk about a little bit later. But so here is the first clip of this discussion. So just listen to sort of what happens and we'll talk about it in a minute. Do you think that what they did was a capital offense? What they did? You mean playing with me? Yeah. Well, they could have killed me. Well, they ran me off the road and I died. Bad behavior, no argument. Reckless endangerment, reckless driving, host of bad things. Is it a capital offense they committed against you? Apparently. I did kill him. So to me, it must have been. Because when I had come to that point, and that point, that is the last point they come to. I don't back off once I go forward. Once I go forward and I take a gun, I do not back off. I didn't know how many they had. I didn't know what they had. They could have had guns. They could have had anything. They wanted to play with me. I didn't want to play. So we didn't play no more. So I wanted to play that clip because do you hear anything in that conversation? So what they're talking about is that he... He, these guys were playing with him on the road as far as like trying to run him off. They're probably drunk or whatever, just, you know, got him. They didn't know who he was or any of that. And he found them and killed all three of them. And so he's explaining and, and the psych is asking him, you know, do you feel like that was a capital offense, et cetera? So there's not a lot to hear in that. It doesn't sound like there's a lot to hear in it right? Like about his reaction or any of that. So directly after that, so that was an example of a real-time discussion. And that was actually an example of Richard having emotion. <laughs> so wow. here we, so, so then directly after that, this clip happens and um, we see him have a reflection on his emotion and there's a therapeutic moment and there's sort of an, an understanding that comes and I just want to play that for you so here it is 
and I would have taken whatever came. You almost made me mad. I know. What made you mad about that? I don't know, but you almost did. Can you figure out what it is? No. Try to look at it. Look at what made you mad there. I don't know. I think it must have been something you said. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, but I don't know what it was. Could it be that I was challenging you and it sounded judgmental? Could be. Hmm. Yeah, it could be. Because you've got me annoyed with you now. Yeah. That's the truth. How mad are you? I bet. Pretty. I feel a little flushed. So that means that I've reached a point in my life that I'm a little annoyed. What would you like to do? Doesn't matter. I don't think it's gone to the point that I'm actually gonna do anything stupid. Just uh, curious to myself why it, why it happened. I don't know why it happened. I'm, I'm actually almost glad it did happen because you had a chance to see something. But I don't know why, it's, why it happened. Did you feel I was criticizing you? Yes. Is that what did it? I think so. I think that's the part that did it. Who used to criticize you the most? Of course, my father. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's the displacement. <laughs> and there it is. <laughs> yeah. But but what's interesting about that is that I mean this psych uh, hours and hours and hours of interviews. It's not like he was able to get to that kind of thought process. You know, in no, an he's, hour, he's clearly insightful, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, Kuklinski's clearly insightful in this interview, and just being able to stop and process and well, and he gets there too because right, what you notice about well, if you've worked <laughs> in an editing department before, like I have, they what you notice when you're actually visually watching it is that right before he comes to that sort of conclusion about. Uh, his dad and that you, you know, you criticize me or whatever, uh, there's a cut. So I think, you know, it took a while probably to get to those kinds of conversations and conclusions for them. But I wanted to play that because one, you don't have any, when you're watching it, you get a little bit of a sense of it, but you don't have a sense that he's mad <laughs> really from his voice mm -hmm. from his and i think that's so often true right and uh, his the composure that he's had to learn to also have for part of his job he can't mm -hmm. walk around like the tasmanian devil and do his job no. and i i think where we are sort of chronologically is is when he was walking around like the tasmanian devil and killing whoever he wanted mm -hmm. to kill right but after decades and decades plus he's in prison plus he's mm -hmm. he's literally he's asked and agreed to have this interview because he wants self knowledge and so you know it's a little bit of a, a different thing where but i also think that in a narcissistic personality mm -hmm. you often don't know you've stepped in shit i mean as a therapist that that often happens that the therapist doesn't or that yeah. the person doesn't the therapist sometimes especially if you don't have oh, any experience sure with working with a person like this yeah i think um you don't you often don't know you've stepped in shit yeah. You don't know you've pissed them off. You don't know right. you've, and it, when this guy, I mean, I think 
if I'm this psych I know because I've sat with him for hours and mm -hmm. I I could I could kind of see that his face in the video you can kind of see that his face is flushed a little bit if you're really paying attention you can see his speech gets a little bit faster mm -hmm. and his face kind of gets a little bit agitated so you can read his affect more than but in his voice you just don't no because I'm I'm here listening to it blindly I'm not looking at the video and it sounds just very composed but I will say something you said that's important because I've worked with violent offenders when they're in when they've been institutionalized for a certain amount of time they do sort of gain this ability to tolerate I don't know like the the institutionalization piece sometimes makes it a lot easier to do therapy mm -hmm. they get used to a certain structure mm -hmm. and they've accepted that this is their life and sometimes I feel like it's easier to work with these guys than it is to work with someone in the clinical population because they just there's expectations that uh, they now need mm -hmm. to you know yeah that's been my experience too yeah and I other mean, like you said and otherwise he yeah he wouldn't be able to no. do this interview if he no. was flailing around or punching someone in the face well and even if he was an older guy you know towards the end of his career and he was more contained and he's talked often about how you know well you have to piss me off for me to want to hurt you and i didn't get pissed off at everybody and it depended on the day he's talked about that like it depended on the day if i was in a good mood then you couldn't piss me off well, if I was, and you just never knew you know? exactly and it and as a sociopath too, he knows, I think, um, to sound articulate, to sound intelligent, mm -hmm. to be taken serious. Mm -hmm. He's, he's going to be taken more serious if he stays composed versus mm -hmm. someone who might be more narcissistically oriented, who just is all over the place and yeah. much more obvious. For sure. And he even says, he said, he, I think it's important to note when he says, I've come to the place where I'm just a little bit agitated or whatever he yeah. says. And that to me, I, what I hear in that is I'm at a place in my life where I can get pissed off at you. And I'm not going to do something stupid because he says, I'm not going to do anything stupid. Control. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he kind of smiles when he says it. He's like, I've come to the place in my life where I can just be a little bit agitated with you. Mm -hmm. With you. Yeah. That's how he talks. There's, there's like an arrogance <laughs> in there, though, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, please. When you watch him, it's like it's all uncomfortable smiles. He's very smug. And, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. He's super smug. And, and, you know, for lots of reasons. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll, become, we'll be coming back uh, with more Richard Kuklinski. We'll be back in a second. Kathy and I can be reached on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page for extra content and more behind-the-scenes discussions. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and new episodes of Shrink Chat every Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Hi, everybody. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. We are back talking about Richard Kuklinski. This second chunk of the show, I wanted to get more in depth about some of the personality that we're looking at here. Would that be cool? That would be cool. Let's do it's that. It's loaded. It's super loaded. And I think now is the time to sort of stop down with chronological history because what ends up happening is he ends up working for the mafia and killing a whole lot of people for a long time. And I, I want to know... Like how and why and, and and how that comes to fruition and how he is uniquely capable of doing that. But first, the first thing I think that we need to add into this soup of personality is the domestic violence piece. So what ends up happening is he is with this um, 
woman named Linda who we've uh, mentioned before, and he ends up uh, getting her pregnant. Now they live together and he ends up getting her pregnant. And during that time, he is absolutely hurting her. There's domestic violence in the relationship from the beginning. And he talks about that as well. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to play a couple of clips. One is where he sort of describes himself and then he talks about his kids. And then the second clip, he talks more about the domestic violence and, and kind of where, where he sees that playing in. But so he's in this relationship, he gets her pregnant and he tries to, um, hurt her so in order to lose the baby. You know, I think sometimes he's portrayed in the media as someone who he had this contract killing mafia job and then he also had this like loving family with three children and gosh, how could he be both people? Mm-hmm. Well, okay. I I don't <laughs> I don't that's not actually how it is. Mm-hmm. Um I understand that that's how that's a more interesting story in the media to mm-hmm. sort of think that he could be a nice guy and a bad guy and we, he's just a bad boy. Yeah, that he's yeah. just a bad boy and he just had this job with the mafia, but we know more than that already now after two and a half episodes. So what I ha- what I would love to make very clear is that he kicked her in the stomach. He started beating her more and this is what we see in domestic violence cases, right? There's that I mean, there's a couple of times when women are in more danger than other times. And one is when they get pregnant. And that's what the statistics tell us is that when a woman is pregnant and in a domestic violence uh, um, relationship, they are more at risk for dying. Sure. And they're super vulnerable at that time, too. You know, which for an abuser, that's like, woohoo. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they they love that. Um but I was going to say, going back to the relationship piece again, there's no possible way um, he could all of a sudden be married and have a healthy relationship when he's never had one in his entire life. And I think some people I think this is important because if people really do believe that story, that he was this bad boy over here killing people, but was this, this show up husband, father, whatever, guys, that's impossible. You can't split a personality. You can't, uh, first of all, no one can rescue you enough to all of a sudden be fixed that way. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's an important point because a a lot of people believe they can come in and love that person enough to, to, to change them. And sure they can't. Sure. And I want to, I want to actually, I I realized I wasn't being super, super clear for those of you who do know the do know this story is that he had a first wife named Linda Mm -hmm. um, and they had two sons and that's what I'm talking about. The one that was in the media for years and years, and there's a book I think she wrote and everything is another second wife named Barbara where he had three more kids. Mm -hmm. So I just want to be clear about that because I know it's confusing and I'm not doing the chronological thing anymore. So (laughs) I don't want to get too confused. But the point is, is that he was a domestic abuser and um, he witnessed it as a kid. Yeah. And he took beatings as a kid. So, yeah. Right. So let me play a clip or two here. And then I also want to just get into a little bit more about what we call the cycle of violence in our world. So this is him, uh, I believe, describing himself. And then he talks a little bit about his kids. So I just want to play that so you can get a sense of how he orients to feeling about his children. So here you go. We're having too much fun, you know, 
You realize that? I'm coming across like a nice guy. Nobody's going to believe this. Nobody. I wouldn't believe this if I was watching this. Because I'm the furthest thing from a nice guy. I am what you call a person's nightmare. Because of the way I project myself, people think they can get by. And then all of a sudden, when they wake up, it's too late. They already hit the stop sign. And that's a dead stop. But there have been people you've been good to, aren't there? Not many. There have been people. I don't know what you consider good. Uh, your interpretation of good might be different than mine, I don't know. What do you mean good? Well, how do you think you were with your kids? Oh, the kids. Now you're talking completely different. Now you're talking black and white. There was nothing I wouldn't do for my, my children. Nothing. I'd kill everybody in this room for them. That's just to show you a point. Not that I would or want to, I'm just saying I would. If it meant I had to for them, I would do it without even thinking twice. It might upset me, it might hurt me, but I would do it. Does that answer your question? To a point, then you're not sure. All right. Who else were you good with? Yeah, so I, I wanted to play that because I wanted to put the kids in the mix a little bit. Even though he tried actively to abort his first child with his first wife, that once the kids were there and around, he gave this impression that he was really caring for them, <laughs> I guess is the only way to put it. Because if you just hear him talking about it there, it seems like he's the most protective father in the world. But what was happening was a whole lot of domestic violence and, and a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of witnessing of things. And I just want to play this second clip that I think says a little bit more about that. And then we'll uh, wrap up our discussion on domestic violence. Good with there aren't many people I was good with. It was only my family. I would, was good to my family. And even those people I hurt. How? Just by being there. I was a nasty son of a gun. I am a nasty son of a gun. What, what would happen at home? You name it. Violence, I think they call it domestic violence. Yes. I've cornered it all. There's nothing I haven't done and nothing she hasn't put up with. I'm not proud of it. It's the way it is. I could say I'm sorry, what good would it do? I couldn't have been too sorry, I did it again. But yet I was sorry. I couldn't control it. It's one of those things. Couldn't control it. I found something I couldn't control. Almost a hate, love hate, love, relationship. So I really liked, loved the girl. But when I got mad, I forgot all that and wound up 
hurting the person I love. So, where did I really love her? I still hurt her. I think that's a pretty great description. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he gives a, a pretty uh, relatable description for it. You know, we can talk all kinds of psychological constructs, but mm-hmm. he says, I liked her and I loved and I hated her and I, you know, it was black and white. And when I, when I wanted to hurt her, I forgot all of the things that I liked about her. Um, and we see this a lot with this personality structure, that lack of object constancy, right? Where it's like they're either all good or all bad. And it's really easy for someone who's sociopathic or narcissistic to, um, in a moment, change and see that person is all bad and completely forget that they're an integrated whole. Mm -hmm. So it would be very easy for someone like him to, when he's mad, go, now you're all bad and I hate you. Mm -hmm. Because there's no... There's no flexibility of of view, right? What ends up happening in when we see people who have uh, went, gone through even a part some of what Richard went through is an an inability to um, ebb and flow between bad, good, mad, happy. Mm-hmm. There's an inability to have a a drift into those mm-hmm. things, meaning uh, just a slow drift into sad or a slow dif- drift into happy. It's it's immediate, nothing. right? Mm-hmm. And that just comes from the chaos mm-hmm. that he ensued in inside. I mean, all of the things we've talked about. It's just it was inevitable in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had the um, he had the genetic piece from his dad. This is sort of what we see in psychopathy: is there's this genetic piece. But the genetic piece doesn't hardwire you for being a psychopath. But then you get that, that risk-averse situation, uh, I mean, um, fearlessness that he has. And then you couple that with um, the trauma that he incurred. Mm-hmm. And then that was it. It's but, just layers. Like yeah, the seed, sure. The seed was planted through genetics, but his for environment sure. went, there you go. Opening Here you door. go. Deliver yeah. the package. So we'll talk about antisocial in just a second, but I wanted to finish up with, uh, if you Google, it's widely known, but if you are not familiar with it and you're interested in um, domestic abuse and, and how that works psychologically, there's something called the cycle of violence that you can easily Google and what you'll find is something like um, a power and control wheel and it looks like a big circle. And this is something that's used by the National Center on Domestic and Sexual Violence. It's used by, you know, professors of psychology when you're learning, uh, when you're in your domestic uh, abuse class. And what it shows is the cycle and what he's, and that is exactly what he's talking. It's like the power and control cycle of um, the abuse the, the lead up to it, so there's the coercion and threats and intimidation and emotional abuse and, and all the different tactics that an abuser uses, including those things that I mentioned, and then um, isolation, uh, gaslighting, which is more like minimizing and denying your reality, um, blaming. Uh, I imagine he used the children a lot once there was children. Mm-hmm. You know, he used the children against her. Triangulated. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, threatening to take the children away, stuff like that. 
Um, there's economic abuse. There's uh, the, the sort of male privilege abuse where they treat you like a servant and you make all the big deci- He makes all the big decisions and, mm-hmm. you know, you're the little woman type of thing. And obviously we're talking about a, a straight relationship in this situation, but it obviously can happen regardless of gender. Um, and, and what happens is there's all of these, these control and power tactics and then the abuse happens and then after the abuse, there's the honeymoon phase where there's a lot of um, niceties, bringing of flowers. He's back to himself. See, back back really... to the person she met. Another part of DV too, when we're, and mm-hmm. again, we're looking at the heterosexual model of this, because this most of the research has been done on male perpetrator, female victim, mm-hmm. is the distortions around masculinity and femininity too. And I think that goes into what you were saying about the sort of male privilege, I, I call the shots, but femininity with many DV perpetrators, femininity, femininity is a sign of weakness. So if, if it's a traditional relationship, she's just automatically seen as inferior and weak from the get go. Right. And there's a lot of things playing into Richard's situation with that, mm-hmm. the family he grew up in mm-hmm. and watching his mother and um, witnessing all of that and the time, mm-hmm. the time in America that yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. So culturally his uh, the culture at large and the culture of his family are both reinforcing that that was the kind of family he was going to have mm-hmm. so um there's that all right so let's talk uh would you kathy dr kathy barrett would you cool. diagnose him with antisocial personality disorder absolutely <laughs> not just kidding yes i would <laughs> As would I. I'm glad we we're in agreement. Uh, the psychiatrist in this video would as well. I, mean, I think he like hits every criteria. <laughs> if we're going DSM, he's pretty much he's a textbook. So, yeah. what or what are we talking about? So, personality structure. Uh, sometimes antisocial personality disorder is sometimes called sociopathy, which we refer to it all the time. Sometimes it's referred to that. There, that's not what it's called in the DSM. But if you're colloquially hang you know having a conversation um people who are sociopaths have antisocial personality disorder Mm -hmm. right like so and not all of them will blatantly break the law many of them do Mm -hmm. some of them do and never get caught but they're not all physically violent many of them are actually not physically violent that's right so let me let me say all the things that sort of aren't violent about um antisocial personality disorder there's a disregard for right and wrong which serves criminality and serves hurting people, but it, that's the case. Just disregard for right and wrong. Um, persistent lying or deceit, like to exploit others, that happens a lot. And and Richard was definitely someone who lied and deceited and was a good actor. He could uh, lie and it made him very good at his job because mm-hmm. he had to con people into going with him so that he could kill them. Mm-hmm. So there would always be a situ- there's there's one story where he um, was given, oh, the, the story I told earlier, the way he got the guy to go with him so that he could behead him and everything else um, was, I guess the guy was a car salesman. And so he went onto the car lot and paraded around like he was going to buy a car and told him stories about, oh, I want this kind of car, but like did a whole spiel mm-hmm. and then got him in the car to do a test drive and then... You know, mm-hmm. and then there's the rest. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was just 
he was he was sort of likable. He's got that surface charm, and he was good looking at that point. And so, anyway, yeah, deceitful, uh, callous, cynical, disrespectful, those kinds of things. One thing I would say um, is a fearlessness. Mm-hmm. So, you and I have a fear of things. <laughs> A response. Right. And and kind of um, a lot of people can have that fearlessness and be bungee jumpers or, I don't know, police officers or firemen or whatever. You know, they can have a, a bravery, a fearlessness. Uh, but this is but but this is no ordinary. Like there's no ordinary fear. It's, it's <laughs> I mean, if you're going to be technical, like it's, it's an underdeveloped autonomic nervous system. So these are people who literally their brains do not produce the same fear response as someone who's more neurotypical. So they can kill someone Mm -hmm. and go, okay, I'm going to bed now. Yeah. That's what I was talking about, about there's a genetic piece and he, and you know, obviously he's getting it from Stanley. Like his dad is, uh, was, I think pretty clearly. I'd like to see what he scores on the psychopathy checklist. Like if we did his yeah, PCLR. if we yeah. did it, we can do it next time if you want. Because not all antisocials <laughs> will will score as psychopath, but he clearly is. Right. He's we a, can he's answer up, the questions for him and see what, see how he scores. Yeah. Um, they often have poor and abusive relationships. Uh, negative consequences don't really mean anything. Um, the consistent or the consistent irresponsibility, I would say, depends on the how sophisticated they are. Because mm-hmm. I've known sociopaths who are extremely responsible and uphold. Well, and he was right. He yes, he, you know. I think this is um, paid um, the bills, and <laughs> sometimes we assume this about people who are antisocial. But I think if they're more sociopathological or psychopathological, mm-hmm. they can actually be incredibly responsible and organized. Well, and that's what's that's why I think people find him interesting too, is because not only do they have kind of a a strange kind of way of looking at him being split, like oh, he had this happy family and <laughs> and he was this criminal, but um, the family wasn't so happy, and he wasn't he was organized. I mean, he was responsible. He obviously had a house and for his work, paid Ooh. bills. Yeah, and he was responsible in his work, and he was known in the mafia as being honest mm-hmm. and reliable mm-hmm. and all of that because I think it was. I mean this work was serving him and it yeah, and it's only the, because it benefited him. Yes. Yeah. And it's the way he could be doing this for decades. One of the things that I, I've no, I, I noticed too, is when you're looking again at this personality structure is they might be consistently responsible in work, but not in home or mm-hmm. vice versa. Mm-hmm. They're, they're okay at home, but then their work's all fucked so up. So like good relationships at work, bad relationships at home type of thing could happen too, right? Yeah, or just like they 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 might show up and be a certain way at home. They're still abusive, but they're more, I don't know, present or whatever. But then their work, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but then their work is not so much or vice versa. And like um, a sociopath I have known in my life, you know, she was really, when it came to her work, man, it was like meticulous. However she did a lot of things that would have been considered unethical or illegal when it, when it was around, you know, money finance, they find ways to work things. They Mm -hmm. don't always get caught, Mm -hmm. but responsibility as far as how she was able to organize her work and things like that was very sophisticated. I think sometimes people don't think they can be because this is a big criteria of Mm -hmm. the disorder, but I think it depends on the person. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, experientially, I think that's 
absolutely accurate. And I, and I also know that he was kind of a psychopath, you know, one of the other criteria is, I think it's still in the DSM five is, you know, you have to be 18 to be diagnosed with antisocial right. because before that it's conduct, conduct disorder. disorder. And we often see conduct disorder, you know, in kids as a precursor. Right. And we're hopeful that we can have it not turn into the younger it starts. Right. And that's what we kind of talk about. Like it takes relationship and empathy mm -hmm. and, and listening and, and good, you know, a shift to have it not turn into antisocial disorder. And that would have had to come pretty early on for Richard because he had a lot of things going against him. Yeah. And when Shannon talks about the conduct disorder, it's the early signs we see of, you know, deceitfulness, uh, theft, destruction of property, aggression towards animals, just like a, a complete disregard um, early on. And they, in the earlier it's diagnosed, the worse the prognosis is. So if a kid it tends to be diagnosed as a teenager with conduct disorder, they actually have a better prognosis. But when they start that young, it's just way more ingrained and it typically ends up more in, as APD. Yeah, and I think that, and I think that any social... You know, one of the things that absolutely demonstrates your point is that you have to be 18 to be diagnosed with it. But what they're what they say is you, you have to have um, an onset bef before 15 years old or something mm -hmm. of conduct disorder. And then the antisocial stuff has to happen after 15 as well. Right. So right. so, you, you know. Those and, are and sometimes the conduct disorder uh, diagnosed at like 16. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is just, you know, the the mischief mischievous age of being 16 and doing stupid shit. Sure. And it's not typically as intense as the stuff that you'll see like a six or seven year old kid do with conduct disorder. It's really disturbing when you see kids that young, it is that numbed out. And you and, would have seen it with him. Absolutely. Yep. Cause he was already killing animals and all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff and irritable and aggressive and mm -hmm. reckless and all of that stuff as a kid. Mm -hmm. So if we say irresponsible and reckless and all of that, maybe in the context of what we're talking about now and his marriage and all of that, it doesn't seem quite to fit. But if, if, if we're going to see him at the age of, you know, 13, I think it would kind of fit that mm -hmm. we would see him as irresponsible and reckless. And he was and irresponsible in his, in his family life. Yes. Very, so, very yeah. put everybody in danger. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it, it's not like, it's not like, by the by just by the nature of his work that he wasn't putting everybody in danger somebody mm -hmm. could have come along and killed all his family just to hurt him so it's 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 a little bit of a misnomer that he was you know doing right by them mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that that doesn't really fit for me um i want to play a couple more clips and so the, what are the, what these are going to demonstrate specifically is an antisocial personality and specifically that there is a lack of, uh, well, we can use the word normal. I usually say average, but there's a lack of average response to things or average feeling response to things. And I think there's no better way to sort of demonstrate that than to play a couple of um, clips. And one of the reasons why Richard's, um, the discussion of be so rich around Richard is because we do have these interviews, you know, we don't have those kinds of interviews about um, everyone. So I want to play this clip first and we'll discuss and then um, there's a second clip and I think we can just have a a short wrap up about any social personality and uh, all right. So here's the first one. Does it give you any response in your guts to see a man's head explode? 
would surprise me a lot. A response in my gut. What kind of response do we want? I don't know. I don't have any response. Most people, when they see horrible things, if they see somebody badly injured, certainly see something that awful, have a visceral reaction. They feel nauseated. They may want to vomit. Mm. It makes them very uncomfortable all over real fast. Mm. Did you get anything? No, it's a good thing I didn't have to vomit because then I would have had real problems on that motorcycle. But I didn't have that problem. I didn't have any sickness, dizziness, or upset stomach or anything like that. It helped you adapt and cope not to care. Definitely. Not to care is much better. Because it's a weakness to care. That's right, it is. Then you have baggage. When you care, you can't just move. You have to worry. And you got something to lose. That's right. I don't know if you could hear it with the swell of music there. It's very dramatic. Which is very annoying for podcasting. <laughs> I was just having this conversation with um, a friend of mine this morning because, well, Shannon and I met over the weekend. We talked about some upcoming episodes. And um, anyway, this whole idea of like, uh, you know, who are our favorite villains and why kind of thing. And so one of the things that came up about psychopathy, I was talking to my friend about this morning is, I think a lot of people are fascinated by the ability to be in the world. And I mean, imagine what you could do without emotions, mm-hmm. right? Even though you wouldn't really want that for yourself. Right. It's kind of a superpower mm-hmm. in some way. It's maladaptive, but to have a day or two where you're like, wow, I could just do anything without caring. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you hear him talk about how, you know, the caring serves the serves a purpose because if you care then he says what you might not have heard in the in the swelling of music there was that then you have baggage is what he says mm-hmm. then you then you've you've got you can't he says you can't i can't move and go mm-hmm. i can't get and and that's a really interesting kind of way to look at the world mm-hmm. i totally agree that if it didn't come with so much pain like internal pain mm-hmm. that it is completely a superpower yep to not have any emotion. Um, but what I'm always struck by with that clip is the, his, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. Mm-mm. Like, he's like, wait, what am I, what am, am I supposed to feel? What, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it almost had to be explained to him. Yeah. And that's why, that's exactly what the intervention was in that moment is the psych says, well, average people, he uses the word normal, average people, blah, 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 blah. He has to explain it to him because he sees in Richard's face, like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what the, I don't know what the question means. And he doesn't want to humiliate Richard by saying, you don't know what the question means because he wants to get somewhere in the, in the discussion. (laughs) But, um, yeah. So let me, um, so that's an example of him being pretty much befuddled by the fact that he, you know, it would be appropriate to have an emotion after having, Um, shot someone point-blank range. So here's another clip that demonstrates a little bit more. Dismembering bodies, did that turn your stomach? I don't think so. I remember having pizza one day while we were doing something like that. 
pizza in one hand, chainsaw in the other? No. <clears throat> I didn't like chainsaws. That's another fable that they've come up with, that I use chainsaws. See, chainsaws are messy. Yep. All you get is little, all over me I have these little pieces of meat. Now that's a pain in the neck if I use chainsaws. Now would I want to ruin a good shirt with a chainsaw? That would be downright stupid. And I definitely have the wrong. I don't think I could walk around with bits of meat hanging off me or bits and pieces of somebody's body hanging off me. I would probably smell a little bit bad also at that point. So what's a better way to dismember Just a body? knife. A butcher knife, you know, you cut it around the bone and a little slice here, a little slice there. And wrap it, ship it. Do you understand that most people can't imagine doing that to a human? Sure. I can understand that a great deal. I can't understand why I can. Did you have to cultivate that ability, or is that natural for you? I don't know. I don't recall. I did it. I don't recall when I started doing it or why or the feeling I had when I did that, I don't know. Jeffrey Dahmer told me that when he cut bodies apart, yeah. it repelled him. He found it horrible. He had to get himself drunk to overcome that Stink. natural revulsion. Yeah. It's because it's disgusting. Yes, it is. But to you, you could just do it. No feeling. No. The smell sometimes was uh, annoying, but I would put cologne on. I would generally put cologne across here so I could smell the cologne a lot better than I could smell anything else. I thought that was interesting. I wanted to play that piece with the Jeffrey Dahmer comment because mm -hmm. we've talked about Dahmer and Kathy. I was to... thinking about Dahmer actually when he was. Yeah, talking. he points out to him that, you know, when um, this psych was talking to Jeffrey Dahmer that, you know, he was repulsed, but Richard could do it without repulsion. What do you make of that? I think he understood repulsion differently mm -hmm. because he, the way that he responded was like, yeah, it's, it is gross. I have to do this, this, and this, but that's not entirely why Dahmer was repulsed. He was repulsed by the smell, but he was repulsed by the act of it too. Right. And so again, this was something that Kuklinski didn't even pick up on was he's sitting there thinking he's talking about one thing, but it's not really the type of repulsion he was talking about. So there's a dis there was that disconnect. Right. So in the, in this conversation, the psychiatrist is not really, he, he's using it kind of as a blunt object. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the, the conversation with Dahmer and this connection is kind of, is kind of, um, I don't know, it's a little black and white. It's a little surface because Dahmer's understanding of the, the, the moment and the repulsion had a lot more to do with, him his shame over, yeah, I mean, he over had what was to, happening clear and what's interesting is kuklinski even says yeah he had you know he understood he had to be drunk which clearly means that it's not just the smell because mm -hmm. no matter how much you booze you're still going to smell it yeah it had to do with the shame in fact your senses might be heightened, heightened. In, in fact absolutely so. so it's i think it's really interesting that that just kind of went right over him well yeah i mean he was just kind of throwing Dahmer in there because of that like attempting to make a point to richard yeah Not, but i mean richard richard yeah. just kind of disregarded it oh yeah he yeah. doesn't because he doesn't understand any of that 
And he also didn't want to make it about Dahmer. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Because yeah. the second he brought up Dahmer's name, you could oh, hear you him go. Oh, you see his face. He goes, yeah, whatever. Like, his face know. is like, oh, yeah. yeah like, yeah. like don't, he, don't he, steal uh, my he almost, he almost goes to a point when you're watching it, it's this real subtle, like, dismissiveness that happens where he doesn't want him to relate him to Dahmer. Yeah. In other words, I'm not like that guy. Yeah. But then he very quickly corrects because he's looking at the guy and the guy is serious and he very quickly corrects and realizes, okay, he's not insulting me or he's not trying to group me with him. He's actually saying I'm different. And then Mm -hmm. he, and then he doesn't, and then Mm -hmm. he's okay with it. It's Mm -hmm. really, Oh, Richard. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're going to come back and discuss, uh, we're going to just kind of reflect on this and there's actually one more personality piece I want to throw into this, um, stew when we come back, but we'll come back with some reflective thoughts about the episode. We'll be right back. Hi there, this is Tara Talk. We're back. Ah, Richard Kuklinski. So this is nearing the end of our third episode, and we have one more episode mm-hmm. on Mr. Richard. So I don't know. What are you thinking today? What's this brought up for you? I think for me, I just keep reflecting back to, um, I've shared this a bunch on different episodes, just how I'm very like attachment-oriented. So it just really, again, reflects like, how that early development can impact somebody for the rest of their life, their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we think about just the combination of genetic components and the right or wrong combination of environmental factors, I'm, I'm studying a lot on Ramirez right now. So he has a very similar type of early childhood where it was like, you know, you're given this, genetic predisposition and then you're somehow just put in the wrong experiences and it creates the perfect storm Mm -hmm. and that's kuklinski like he everything that he plays out in his adult life is really just a mimic of his childhood he's just in a different role yeah, it's it's still extremely primitive, and I'm sure it's totally he, primitive. He would have been really not pleased to hear that mm-hmm. <laughs> that he was, you know, not in control of anything. No, and the, and I think that's a really important component. Is this is sort of like an automatic? He's on autopilot, mm-hmm. but he's under the belief that he's in complete control. Yeah, even in that that clip, he says, "Oh, he kind of jokes." He says, "Oh, found, about domestic violence." He sort of says, "Yeah, found something I can't control." Mm. And it's like, buddy, you None aren't controlling any of this. None of this. You are a complete um, submissive to your structure, your brain. He's a slave to the reptile. Yeah, right? <laughs> really. The lower brain is in charge, mm-hmm. gentlemen. Yeah. Um, but that is, of course, not something that he would have really taken to, that idea. In this documentary, the psychiatrist, Dr. Dietz, he breaks it down for him so towards the end of the interview um is it park deets is yeah. that who's interviewing mm-hmm. oh how interesting yeah. yeah obviously the guy who's talked to Dahmer and talked to you know well yeah he testified and made a huge error on the andre yates yes, case too. yes yeah. he did <laughs> he's very famous and that's why yeah. it made news because yeah when you're when you're very famous and you make a mistake <laughs> he sounds super young in this yeah he yeah. is you can you can see the you can see him in these videos uh and he is super young but in um 
towards the end, so he asks, he says, uh, you know, Richard, why did you agree to this? Mm-hmm. And um, and Richard's reason is that he he sort of said he he um, he says, as narcissists will do, he like. Uh, validates and tells Dr. Dietz how great he is first. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> he put, they, put, they put us on a pedestal. And then he says, um, you know, I, I thought maybe you with all of your credentials and you would be the type of person that could tell me why I did this or why or who I am or why, why I am the way I am. So um, Dr. Dietz goes into antisocial personality disorder he goes into and then he goes into paranoid personality disorder which he asserts is the reason why um richard can was able to be successful for so long Mm -hmm. is because he was able the paranoid piece of it for those of you who don't know which you know you might not is um he could detach is that he could uh often people with paranoid uh, personality disorder they don't have loyalty commitment they don't um, they're reluctant they're very reluctant and Richard was extremely reluctant in um, confiding in others um, they're unforgiving and they hold grudges they um, and and these are the things we see in Richard all along from the clips from our discussion is that he does not forgive. You piss him off and he kills you or he stalks you and kills you or he just holds a grudge forever and never talks to you again. Um, and and the humility, the um, sorry, the humiliation piece, the um, the perceived attack on his character. So even in the little clip that we played where we can't, we can barely hear any shift in his affect in that moment. He even admits to it. Like, I, I think you, you know, you challenged me or you were judging me or, you know, so anything that's perceived as Mm -hmm. an attack will be, you know, and he's cold and distant with others, which is what we see in that personality. So, Dr. Dietz asserts that he's antisocial by both biology and uh, upbringing and then and that he has paranoid personality disorder so that that kept him safe. Mm-hmm. That personality piece and those two in a puzzle kept him from being uh, captured and all that because often how it is is and, and that is ultimately how Richard gets captured is. He, you know, trusted the wrong person. He had like the trifecta of perfect defenses to be successful in, mm-hmm. in what he did. I mean, right? He, clearly it's maladaptive, don't misunderstand me. But I <laughs> mean, it, it, for him, mm-hmm. it, his defenses served as a protective factor as far as being successful in being a professional killer. Yeah, and, and this sets up, uh, what we'll talk about next time, this sort of sets up that. And I didn't plan it that way, actually. It sets up the fact that he the re, the way he does get caught is he actually trusts someone. Uh, and so, you know, <laughs> our defenses are, if we don't look at them and do better and observe them and, and all of that, they, they do us in. It's mm-hmm. like what we talk about in the shadow, you know, like his his shadow piece is, 
is actually attachment and trusting and having healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. That's his shadow. Mm -hmm. His personality is what we would all think of as our own shadow is like the bad or negative stuff, but that's who he is. I, I feel that cause shadows don't have to be negative. No shadows are just what we repress. And so what Richard represses is having relationship and love and vulnerability and trust. And so, um, we'll talk about this more next time, but you know, that part is his shadow. And as he got older and tired and all of that, and his kids were there and getting old, you know, I don't know. I'm not quite sure what happened there. I will talk about it next time, but he, his shadow got him. He never, yeah, he never, um, yeah. Addressed anything. He never worked no. on anything. He never. So yeah, it's going to catch up to you after a while. Absolutely. And and ultimately, unfortunately, him deciding to be vulnerable and open got him caught. But in some ways, that might have been the best thing. Because one, it's certainly the best thing for society. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Obviously, him getting caught and going to prison was the best thing for everyone in the world. But it was also maybe the best thing for him because now we are seeing this guy in these videos that's self-reflective, that's trying to understand whatever. And yes, of course, he's playing out all of his smugness and he loves the spotlight and fame and all of that stuff. But, but he's also, you can kind of see that he's also really intrigued by himself, of course. <laughs> he wants mm -hmm. to understand himself, as we all do, but mm -hmm. right. That's that. Richard Kuklinski. So we'll do one more week on this. We also have the Shrink Chat show coming up on Friday. And um, Kathy actually kind of alluded to the fact that she was reading about Ramirez. So she's working on that. And we actually decided over the weekend that that's going to air somewhere around mid-February. Mm -hmm. So look forward to that. That'll be the next true crime psychology series we do. But between now and then, we've got some other stuff planned, which we will talk more about on the Shrink Chat Show. So come on back. Um, this is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.